But here's Jason uh, reading Acts 8 for us. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed at all the people and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands on will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that He may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south of the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candace, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. 
The Spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was, at, was reading. He was led like a, sheep, like a sheep to slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Acrotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Once upon a time, there was a great and powerful king. And he decreed that a magnificent banquet was to be held in his realm. And all the greatest people of the realm were to come, the dukes and the duchesses, the counts and the countesses, the gentlemen and their ladies. And it was to be the celebration of a lifetime. Beyonce was going to perform. And there was enormous excitement. The society pages were filled with gossip and rumors about who'd be there and what they'd be wearing. But on the night of the banquet, something amazing happened. Nobody turned up. And the king was there in his royal robes. The banquet table was groaning with food, but the hall was empty. And the king was astonished. He called his servants to him and he said, what day is it today? Yes, I've got the right date. Am I in the right castle? Yes, I'm in the right castle. Look, go out and ask all of my guests why they haven't come. And, but when the servants went, all of the guests began to make excuses. One of them said, tonight's the first night of Ninja Warrior Australia. I can't possibly go out tonight. I can't come. Another one said, I'm in the middle of making sourdough and the sourdough's rising. I couldn't possibly leave the sourdough now. I can't come either. Another one said, I'm feeling a little anxious about COVID. I, I think I should social isolate a little longer. I can't come. And all the servants came back and reported to the king what the guests had said. And the king became furious. He said, go out quickly into the streets and the alleyways and invite, invite all of the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And so they did. But there was still more room at the banquet. And so the king said, go to the very lowest of the low. Go to the people of Mayfield and the people of Shortland and Maitland and invite them in so that my banquet will be full. And I tell you, not one of my original guests will ever come to my banquet. That's a story that Jesus told. Well, I mean, I made one or two changes. 
but it's from Luke chapter 14. And when you stop and think about it, it's not actually a very happy story, is it? People refuse to come to this great king's banquet, which seems like a mean thing to do, doesn't it, if you've been invited to a party? And then the king writes them off and invites any old dregs. It's not actually a terribly happy story, especially since it came true. We see that story come true today in Acts chapters 6 to 8. We've been working through Acts for a couple of weeks now, and you probably have spotted two big themes starting to emerge. The first great theme is that God's age of blessing has come with Jesus, the age of blessing and forgiveness. In fact, God even pictured this age of blessing as a banquet. Isaiah 55, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and, and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. See, God promised this banquet of blessing and forgiveness. And the big message of Acts is it's come with Jesus. The apostles are preaching God's banquet, this new age of forgiveness and blessing. But the other theme that we've started to see emerge is that God's people, the Jews, don't want it. Remember Acts chapters 3 and 4, Peter and John had done this great miracle and the Jewish leaders call them in and tell them they're not to preach in Jesus' name anymore because, you see, the Jews had executed Jesus and so, of course, it's not going to do to have people going around preaching in Jesus' name. Now, look, just as an aside, it's not a very popular thing nowadays nowadays to say that the Jews were responsible for Jesus' death. People are afraid that it will lead to anti-Semitism. And in fact, Hitler did use the fact that the Jews had killed Jesus in order to justify the Holocaust. And so nowadays, any suggestion that the Jews killed Jesus isn't on. And we do have to say, there is never any justification at all for violence against Jewish people. Any form of racism is wrong, isn't it? And yet that doesn't change the facts of history that his own people, the Jews, did kill Jesus. It's in the Gospels, it's in Acts time and time again, we're going to see it today. And as the chapters of Acts have gone by, the tension has started to rise. The apostles are preaching in Jesus' name, the the Jews try and stop them. And today this tension reaches its great climax with a man named Stephen. Now, Stephen isn't actually one of the apostles, but he is your classic man of the age of blessing. We meet him because some of the Greek widows aren't being fed properly. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. 
You see, Stephen's job is to be one of these guys who make sure that the Greek widows get fed. And he's not one of the apostles, but he is your classic man of the new age of blessing. So in verses 3 and 5, he's full of the Holy Spirit that's been poured out by Jesus. And in verse 8, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did wonders and miraculous signs among the people. You see, Stephen is this classic man of the age of blessing. He's got grace and power and the Holy Spirit and miracles. He personifies this poured out blessing of God. And so, of course, the Jews reject him. Look in verse 9. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandra, uh, Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they couldn't stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him to the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. We've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the ancient customs Moses handed down to us. See, Stephen gets dragged into court and they make two huge accusations against him. One, he blasphemes against Moses and two, he attacks the temple. And in Jewish society, you cannot get two bigger accusations than that because Moses was the great lawgiver. He was Israel's greatest prophet and the temple is the dwelling place of God himself. These are the sorts of accusations that could get a man killed. And so you can imagine, as, Jesus, as uh, Stephen is standing there before him and the priests say, are these accusations true? You can imagine the tension as Stephen makes his defense. Let's look at some highlights of his speech. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no, in no, he gave him no inheritance there, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at the time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. God said, and afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days later after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him 
and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in a tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill His promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt, in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At the time Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him in and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that, this, that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the, out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, 
Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. Has there ever been a speech braver than Stephen's? He's standing in the courtroom that's already sentenced Jesus to death. And it's already flogged the apostles and the charges against Stephen are beyond serious. And he attacks. He starts agreeably enough. He starts with verse 2, brothers and fathers, listen to me. That almost sounds friendly, doesn't it? Brothers and fathers. Until you discover what Jesus, uh, what Stephen thinks of the brothers and fathers of Israel. You see, God was generous to the fathers of Israel. Verse 2, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I'll show you. You see, God was generous to the fathers of Israel. But what did the brothers and fathers do? Well, verse 9, it was the brothers of Joseph, the fathers of Israel, who who, uh, sold Joseph as a slave off into Egypt. See, maybe brothers and fathers isn't actually quite the warm title we think it is after all. In fact, wasn't it the brothers and the fathers of Israel who actually rejected Moses? Look in verse 23, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own brothers, the sons of Israel. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own brothers would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came across two Israelites who were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other one pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. You see, who is it that actually rejects Moses? Well, it's not Stephen. It's the brothers in Israel. And it's the fathers in Israel. Have a look in verse 37. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. He was one in the he was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers and he received living words to pass on to us but our fathers refused to obey him instead they rejected him and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt they told Aaron make us gods who'll go before us as for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt we don't know what's happened to him you see who is it that really rejected Moses It wasn't Stephen, it was the brothers in Israel and it was the fathers in Israel, the same brothers and fathers who now stand before before Stephen. Verse 51 is the great climax of Stephen's speech. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. 
Peter says, brothers and fathers, you are just like your brothers and fathers. You accuse me of rejecting Moses. You accuse me of rejecting Moses' law. But you're just like your fathers. And now you killed the Messiah. You betrayed and murdered the righteous one. You are just like your fathers. Do you see what Stephen's speech is about? It's a masterful sermon. It's brilliant. He starts by calling them brothers and fathers. And then he shows them exactly the kind of brothers and fathers Israel have always been. Brothers and fathers who resist the Holy Spirit in verse 51. The same spirit that God has now poured out and that Jesus is speaking by. The great banquet of God is standing open before them. They have the invitation, but they refuse to come. The inevitable conclusion is verse 57. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And now we understand Jesus' story, don't we? Or at least the first part of it. God's banquet of forgiveness has been laid out. The banquet he promised in passages like Isaiah 55. The people of Israel have been invited. But just as they always have, they refuse to come. They reject their king's invitation and they kill the messenger who brings it. And from this moment onwards, throughout the rest of the book of Acts, the Jews are implacably opposed to God and to the Holy Spirit. Oh, some will come to the feast, but again and again and again, God's people, the Jews, will harass and bully and even try to kill God's messengers. And so God invites the Gentiles. God sends his messengers out into the byways and the lanes to call the spiritually weak and the lame and the blind. Uh, we read Acts chapter 8 earlier. It, it follows another of the widow feeders, Philip this time. And Philip goes to the most despised people you could ever imagine. The people you would never invite to your feast. Never mind Maitland and Shawfield, uh, Shortland. These, Philip goes to the Samaritans. Acts chapter 8 verse 4. Those who'd been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Now, the Samaritans actually lived to the north of the Jews. You go down to Samaria because Samaria is a horrible place and you're coming down from the heights of Jerusalem. But Samar Samaritans lived north of the Jews in between Judea and Galilee. And the Jews and the Samaritans despised each other, partly because they were actually sort of brothers. You see, the Samaritans were kind of half-breed Jews. 700 years before Jesus, another nation, the Assyrians, had come in and wiped out the northern ten tribes of Israel. And the way the Samaritans ruled was they carted off loads of the indigenous people, loads of the Israelites to other countries that they ruled, and they brought in foreigners. And so that part of Israel became this sort of weird, hybrid, half-nation, kind of like Queenslanders to the north. And they ended up this cultural melting pot. 
They were sort of semi-Jews, but not really. They had this perverted religion where they worshipped God. They even had their own temple, which the Jews really, really hated. But it was a, a weird mixed religion, full of idolatry and suspicion and rituals from every other nation that had been brought in by the Assyrians. And so the Jews and the Samaritans despised each other. At one stage, the Jews sent a raiding party to destroy the Samaritan temple. They sacrificed a pig on the altar and then they ripped the whole place down. Later on, in revenge, the Samaritans got the Jews back by throwing human remains into the Jewish temple. That's the kind of relationship these two people had. They hated each other. But when the Jews reject God's banquet, that's who God invites. The Samaritans. And look how differently the Samaritans respond to God's invitation in verse 6, chapter 8, verse 6. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he, he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was great joy in that city. You see, the Jews reject God's message. They kill God's messenger. But the Samaritans, they come flooding in. They're overjoyed to receive God's invitation. They come to the banquet. And look what happens in verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit hadn't yet come on any of them. They'd simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. That's unthinkable. It's unthinkable that Samaritans would receive the Holy Spirit. They're coming in to the great banquet of blessing. The Jews have rejected the invitation, but now the Samaritans are crashing the Jewish party. What's even more extraordinary, though, is where Philip goes next. Never mind to Samaritans. At least they've got something in common with Israel. Philip goes to an Ethiopian. Look in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, to the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Now this Ethiopian... He isn't a Jew. He's not even a Samaritan, a half-breed Jew. It's likely that he's something called a proselyte. Now, proselytes were foreigners, Gentiles, but they worshipped the true God. So they couldn't offer sacrifices. They couldn't go into the temple or anything like that. They couldn't inherit land in Israel, but they could go and pray in the outer courtyard of the temple, which is what this fellow has been doing. And since the Jews have rejected God's banquet, the Holy Spirit sends Philip to this Ethiopian. He's lit Philip's literally out in the highways and the byways. And look in verse 36, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down in the water and Philip baptized him. You see, Acts chapter six to eight is Jesus' story of the banquet come to life. The people who are invited 
the people of God, the Jews, reject God's banquet of forgiveness. And so now the nations are being invited in, the enemies, the spiritually lame and blind and weak. And, and we haven't actually reached a fully fledged pagan yet. We haven't hit a complete idol worshipping Gentile yet. But the banquet has begun. The banquet of forgiveness, the nations are being invited in. And you know one of the big things that this passage teaches us about our God? It teaches us his abundant generosity. Because what does God do when his own people reject his wonderful invitation? He saves his enemies. God doesn't sulk. He doesn't destroy. He's so determined to fill this banquet that he turns to anyone even Samaritans and Ethiopians. And he says, you come to my banquet. You come and eat and drink. You come and have the wine of forgiveness. Come feast on the bread of heaven, Jesus. In fact, he even invites his own worst enemies. No one is too great an enemy of God to be forgiven. It doesn't matter what you've done or who you've been in your life. God invites everyone into his feast. Samaritans. Ethiopians, liars, adulterers, addicts, greedy people, selfish people, people who've hurt the people that they love. It doesn't matter what you have been or who you have been. God extends to you this great invitation. Come to my banquet. Come to Jesus and be forgiven. Come and trust Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf, that Jesus died to pay for everything that you ever did. And now I offer you feast on my love and forgiveness. And all you have to do is say yes. All you have to do is come. Our God is the God of the banquet. Look, as a church, we cling to this, right? This is something we passionately believe because what kind of church would ever pray for 30,000 people to become Christians in their region? When everyone else is busy declaring the death of Christianity and the downfall of the church, what kind of church prays for a five-fold increase in the number of Christians in their area? Only a church that believes in the banquet, right? Only a church that believes in the God of the banquet and the feast of forgiveness is ever going to pray that prayer. If you didn't believe in that kind of God, you'd never pray that prayer, would you? You might pray for one or two people to become a Christian. You might pray for the, the dribs and the drabs. You might pray that we can maintain our numbers while everyone else is turning away from Christianity. You might pray that as, as Christianity dwindles into nothing in the West, maybe the last faithful few will turn off the light before we leave. That's the prayer that you pray if you don't believe in the God of the banquet. That's not our prayer. Because that's not our God. Our God sends us out into the highways and the byways to call the strays, to call the losts, to call the people who have ruined their lives, to call the people who've been the enemies of God, to call every single Australian. We believe in the God of the banquet. And we believe in the God of the stories. You know, you'll probably get to meet that Ethiopian in heaven, right? I mean, we've got all eternity. At some point, the likelihood is you're going to bump into this guy and go, oh, you're that Ethiopian. I remember reading about you. 
It's stories like him, isn't it? That give us confidence to imagine other stories, to imagine other people coming to faith. It's stories like him and the Samaritans that make us think that it doesn't matter how opposed someone is to God, he can turn them back and bring them into his banquet. Whose story are you going to be part of? Who are you praying for at the moment? Bring them to your mind now. Who are you praying for? Pray for them this morning. Who are you going to invite into life? Won't it be the most amazing thing in the world to sit at the banquet with these people on your right and left and think, I cannot, I'm so thrilled. These people are with me in the great banquet. Let's pray for them now, shall we? Our great God, we praise you that you are the God of the banquet, of forgiveness, of love poured out, of the Holy Spirit poured out, of your message going out even to your enemies. That Samaritans would receive the Holy Spirit, that Ethiopians would receive the Holy Spirit, that Australians would receive the Holy Spirit. We thank you that in your mercy, you do still call the Jews, that we do see the gospel continuing to go out in Acts and even now to your people, the Jews, but we thank you that it goes out to your enemies as well. We pray that we would believe in this God of the banquet. We thank you that you are not just the God of ones and twos. You are the God of thousands. Please, we pray, give 30,000 people to Jesus in Newey and Lake Mac just for a start. May the banquet begin and roll on. We thank you so much for the people who you've already brought to Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.